Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Sometimes you find yourself listening to a podcast and coming close to tears. It's just that good. Or sometimes you're struggling not to laugh out loud on public transport. Or maybe whatever you just heard makes you want to rip out your headphones and stomp on the ground in anger. As our guest today tells us, the key to your personality may lie in whether or not you follow through on these intense expressions of emotion. Dr. Peter Caval is a lecturer from the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. He sits down with our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath, to chat about emotional stability and whether it's a good thing to have. Peter, I was walking around the university and I noticed a lecture entitled Emotional Stability. Is it all that it's cracked up to be? And I thought, I've got to like eavesdrop on this public lecture. <laughs> and that's where I met you. Now, emotional stability. Tell us about how in history and in culture we've been told to be emotionally stable. After all, it's why we meditate, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I think we have got a long history of um, of generally being cautious or suspicious about our emotions. Um, and certainly if not trying to avoid having them all together, then at least trying to keep them at bay to a certain extent, keep them stable. Um, and that I think goes back to, you know, to ancient philosophy and, and spiritual and re religious practices. But I think we've started to question that in particular in the last sort of 30 or 40 years in psychology um, and to, to recognize that, you know, emotions serve important functions. Uh, and that's probably why we're endowed with them, not just as humans, but probably other, other species as well. Um, so that we probably need to recognise their their usefulness and their value, uh, as well as, of course, try to keep them under control and, and make sure they don't overwhelm us. Um, right, hijack our functionality. That's right. yeah. Okay, so give us the punchline. If not emotional stability, and you're questioning this, then what? Over the last couple of decades in particular, um, although this goes back further, uh, in psychology, there's been a, there's been a shift to thinking about the importance of emotional flexibility rather than stability, and what that really entails is um, the ability to respond to the events and the in different environments that we're exposed to um, with you know appropriate emotions, and also then on the other hand to 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 be able to manage and modify those emotional responses, so um, not let them necessarily get out of control or become overwhelming, but at the same time be responsive to, to changes in the environment and to use, I guess, to use the information that emotions convey uh, to help us and to our advantage, which we all do uh, naturally. So we can't escape our emotions. Let's define our terms. How do you as psychologists or scientists that examine this area define emotional stability? That's a very good question. And I think in some ways, uh, the term emotional stability, as it's been traditionally used in psychology, which has been as a, um, a synonym for, well, the opposite of neuroticism, an antonym for neuroticism, is a bit of a misnomer in some, in some, in some ways, because um, perhaps the reason why the term was adopted was that some maybe thought, this is, I don't have any 
evidence for this being historically accurate, but uh, I suspect that it may have been to do with the fact that the term neuroticism had a kind of pejorative sound to it. And um, certainly part of the concept of neuroticism was this idea that people's emotions are kind of unstable and uh, out of control. Uh, so that I think that um, as a more positive sounding term, uh, some psychologists adopted emotional stability as, as kind of describing the other end of the spectrum of neuroticism. And we, we then kind of assumed that people who are low on neuroticism have emotions that actually are literally stable and don't change much over time. And there was quite a lot of research trying to identify links between um, how the dynamics of people's emotions and uh, their self-reported uh, levels of neuroticism and, and other kinds of characteristics as well. But to go back to your original question, how we define emotional stability. So it's often been defined in terms of people's self-reported experience of, you know, my emotions don't change much. They're quite stable. Um, I have a good, you know, I'm able to manage my emotions well. Uh, they don't overwhelm me. I'm not easily stressed out. These are the kinds of questions or items that people uh, would endorse in order to score high on emotional stability or low on neuroticism. But as it turns out, when we look more carefully at how people's emotions change in daily life or in the lab, in, indeed, um, we find that people who score high on neuroticism may actually be more, more emotionally stable on, on some measures. And that's kind of counterintuitive. Right now, I'm sort of clapping in the air because um, I'm a self-confessed neurotic and this is really good news. I mean, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I imagine some of the listeners are like me. However, in the workplace, you kind of have to be a robot. I mean, everyone has tipping points, but managing those tipping points are important in the workplace so you don't create dysfunctionality. But when you're talking about neuroticism, you're not talking about extreme like bipolar disorder, are you? No. So neuroticism is really a one of the basic dimensions of human personality. Um, and I think that goes back to what I said earlier, that the term has often carried a lot of baggage uh, and you know, was early, much earlier in psychology and psychiatry used to refer to uh, certain kinds of mental illness. And it is still related to greater risk or vulnerability for mental illness, but it refers these days, the term neuroticism refers to one of the five basic dimensions of human personality. So everybody can be characterized as falling somewhere on the continuum of you know low to high neuroticism. And people who score high on neuroticism don't necessarily have any mental illness or psychological problems uh, that would be clinically diagnosed. Uh, they might, um, but that's not necessarily the case. And what really characterizes them, I think, is uh, people who score high in neuroticism tend to experience intense emotions, particularly negative ones. And that intensity of emotion can sometimes lead people who score high in neuroticism to actually believe that their emotions are unstable. I don't think we've quite worked out why that is the case, but what we know is that, in fact, it may be the opposite, that people who score high in neuroticism may have intense negative emotions, which actually sort of linger on and last longer. Um, and so by some measures, they tend to actually be more emotionally stable, or I would probably use the term inflexible. Oh, because um, they're locked in that yeah, negative of, bias, as yes. I've heard you psychologists call it. That's right. So in actual fact, emotional flexibility means you can go in and out of those emotions, not hang on to a term I've heard you use, Peter, which is emotional rigidity. Exactly. So it, I think you described it well, the ability to go in and out of emotions uh, 
when necessary and when the when the context demands or when your own goals demand that you do uh, change the way you feel and the way you behave emotionally. Um, so emotional rigidity is the, is the other side of the coin, which is to say sort of the inability to disengage from emotions or the tendency to sort of get stuck in a particular emotional trajectory, which just continues uh, in a direction and can't be pulled back towards, um, you know, a kind of a neutral baseline or a, a home base, emotional home base, if you like. Peter, share with us some of these experiments that psychologists do that give us insights into how our psychological health works. What's captured your imagination? I guess some of the really interesting work that uh, that captured my attention, uh, which I only actually discovered after having started working on this myself and, and had done some research and experiments myself on emotional flexibility, was actually work done a couple of decades ago by John Gottman and his colleagues on married couples. Um, so they brought them into the lab and asked them to have an argument, um, and they, they filmed the couple having an argument and had people code their behavior or their emotional expressions from those videos. And what they found was was sort of surprising, which is that couples in which one or both of the individuals had emotions that were inflexible, meaning that they, they kind of tended to get stuck in a particular emotional state and not respond to what was going on in the discussion and how it was unfolding and developing, actually tended to have worse marital outcomes. Um, and so they termed this emotional inertia, which is actually a term that uh, my supervisor with whom I did my PhD also used to describe the process we were, we were studying, very similar kinds of uh, processes. And so this idea is that if, you, if your emotions are inert or inflexible and uh, they tend to kind of have a life of their own and be self-perpetuating, um, this may mean that you're unable to adapt to changes in the environment um, and you're unable to sort of modify your emotions in line with the situation that, that you're confronted with. So we have this emotional flexibility and we want to stay away from rigidity because that creates that inertia from moving on. And yet there's still this culture-wide requirement for emotional sort of flatlining. Even Warren Buffett, I think, is quoted uh, saying... That's right, yeah. He said that the key to success is emotional stability. And I think others have have made similar kinds of claims. It's like being the same person in every room. Right. Because I guess in terms of leadership, you kind of want to rely on a certain individual responding to you. But in actual fact, you're seeing flaws in that way of being. Absolutely. And I'm sure that if we studied Warren Buffett and and other high-functioning people, we'd find that their emotions do fluctuate from one situation to the next uh, quite a lot. And that... Um, they're able to, you know, even in some cases, perhaps make themselves experience negative emotions. So, you know, increase their experience of negative emotions in certain circumstances when they need to. And um, there are some really interesting researchers doing work on, on that specific question of when we might actually want to make ourselves feel worse and how that can be useful. So, for example, when trying to empathize with a friend who's who's suffered some sort of misfortune or who's, you know, lost a loved one and so on, it would be very bad for the relationship and in general pretty undesirable to sort of maintain your pre-existing level of happiness, for example, that you might have had before you went into that interaction. So I'm I'm sure that that most high-functioning people would naturally and spontaneously sort of try to empathize with their friend and in doing so actually potentially make themselves feel temporarily worse. And it's that ability to sort of shift our emotions 
uh, to meet the situational demands or to to match the situation, which I think is really crucial for for well being and for functioning. You're sort of advocating an emotional adaptability or um, to the context you're in or the environment you're in. How has the movement of positive psychology or even gratitude influenced our psychological well-being? Because it sounds like we need to move on from those. I think we have a lot to be grateful for to the uh, the positive psychology movement because <laughs> we we did for a very long time in psychology focus you know almost exclusively on all you know human suffering, human failings, uh, and human misery, which you know made for a rather sort of dark and, and almost morbid. You know, people people still sign up in droves to abnormal psychology classes because there is something fascinating about about studying all the myriad ways in which humans suffer and and you know the ways that life is you know full of torment. But on the other hand, I think what positive psychology did was bring to light the fact that you know humans actually, in general, the majority of us function well most of the time. And how do we do that? What what actually what strengths and virtues do we possess? Um, that allow us to function well and that we could try to cultivate. So I think, you know, we do have a lot to be thankful for and it's important that this positive psychology movement came about. But I think that it's been taken maybe a little bit at face value by uh, popular culture and so on that this may imply that we should seek to feel good all the time and that there's nothing more to life than, you know, feeling happy. Um, When in fact, I don't think that's really what positive psychologists were claiming in the first place. They were trying to just you know shed some light on and move the focus for, of psychology onto uh, the positive aspects of, of human psychology and human experience but without necessarily denying that you know the negative parts of our experience are still valid and um, I think that maybe you know that train kind of ran away with itself in a way in, in, in popular culture and it has had some negative side effects as a result. So what are we moving towards now? Emotional acceptance, emotional adaptability, mindfulness comes to mind? Yes. So I think that there is some interesting work in, you know, in clinical psychology looking at um, approaches such as mindfulness-based therapies as well as acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a, a related form of, of thinking about um, unpleasant thoughts and emotions, which really, yeah, as you say, advocate, you know, not trying to push away or change things that we experiences that we might find distressing, but rather sort of changing our approach or attitude towards them, our relationship towards them. And and they use terms like decentering or diffusing. So separating yourself from the experience and allowing it to happen, allowing it to unfold. And actually that seems to take the edge off unpleasant experiences and, and potentially limit their duration uh, without sort of trying to deny them or uh, without trying to ignore or stop them in their tracks. Tell me about misconceptions that people have about psychology and the psychological sciences. Well, I think we could be here for a very long time because <laughs> it seems to me that uh, there are about as many misconceptions as there are um, you know, facts in psychology. One of the problems with psychology is that we are all folk psychologists. Um, and so there are, there are sort of two sets of findings that you, you have in psychology, some that conform to our lay beliefs and expectations, which people then dismiss as being, well, we knew that all, all, all along, why did you need to show that? And others which do the opposite and go against our intuitions, which people also dismiss as being impossible or, you know, this can't possibly be true because it goes against everything I feel and know from my own experience. So I think it is it is difficult sometimes to separate, uh, you know, fact from fiction. And psychology has also gone through 
uh, as many sciences in in the last decade or so, a bit of a soul-searching exercise, um, actually looking at the way that we do research. So there's there's it's a complex question because I think we ourselves as academic psychologists have started doubting some of our previous findings and, you know, are they actually robust? Do they replicate? And so on. But I think a lot of the misconceptions come from the fact that although we have an experience of what it's like to be human and to interact with other people, this doesn't always map on in a one-to-one fashion with what's actually happening in our interactions or even in our own experience. And we know that um, the way we remember things and the way that we experience things in the moment don't necessarily match up. So I I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. So what got you into this field? Like most of us toy with going into psychology because I think our inner neurotics just want to know more information about ourselves. So what inspired you? I think I had a similar story to that, exactly. I mean, I think I was, you know, I would consider myself to be high in neuroticism as well. And I would say that that probably motivated me to try to understand more about about other people. But really, part of that quest was to understand myself and my own experience. Um, but what got me interested in specifically studying emotions was was actually meeting the person who became my PhD supervisor and realizing that what I had learned about emotions in my undergraduate psychology course was really only a very small part of the story. Uh, and that actually there were so many questions about emotions that, that weren't that hadn't been answered. Um, so I think I, I had this image of emotions as as being these fairly fixed universal programs um, that we, you know, are born with in a sense and that have universal facial expressions, for example. This is coming from work that was made famous by Paul Ekman, who probably kick-started the modern uh, psychology research on, on emotion, one of, the, one of the few people who did research on emotion in the 60s and 70s when nobody was studying it. Uh, but it turns out that there were many, many questions and still are uh, about emotions that, that really hadn't been answered. And I was quite surprised to know that, that we didn't understand emotions, which seemed to be these really fundamental building blocks of psychology. What have you discovered on your journey that's really been exciting, that's new, compared to when you started? One of the things I discovered, which I think people kind of know in the back of their minds when they study psychology in, in, in general and emotion in particular is just the vast individual differences there are between people. So we can, you know, we can show people films, for example, or, you know, images in the lab and ask them and record their emotional response to those. And although we we tend to focus on, you know, the things that, that are reliable among all different people in terms of, you know, everyone seems to feel a little more sad when they've watched this particular film than when they watch a different happy film, when we start to look at the differences or when we look at individual patterns, we see that there are just absolutely vast differences between people. And um, that also then generalizes to changes over time across different situations. So the same individual can feel utterly different in one situation uh, than in the next. And so that's that's what really got me interested in studying emotion was that um, one of the kind of fundamental properties of emotions theoretically was that they fluctuate and change over time but that there hadn't really been much work on, on describing those fluctuations and trying to understand, um, you know, the patterns in emotional change and fluctuations. So that was what got me, what inspired me to, to get into this area. Okay, Professor, time for you to profess. <laughs> Next time we're in public and we see someone, I don't know, overjoyed or bursting into tears or having an emotional response, what would you like us to think about? I think that we should recognise that... Um, 
we've all had those experiences and or we know somebody who's had intense emotional experiences and uh, that they're a normal part of what it means to be a human. Uh, that's probably the first thing I would think about. And I think the second thing would be to realize that that emotion, both the internal experience the person may be having and also their outward expression actually conveys useful information to us uh, and that we can use. So, you know, as an observer of somebody having an emotion, that, that tells you a lot about what's going on. And it actually is really at the heart of our social interactions with other people. We're constantly reading other people's emotions. So when somebody has a very overt and obvious emotional expression, we should be grateful that we don't have to, you know, um, invest a great deal of energy and, and resources to try to decode some ambiguous emotional expression, which is what we're often faced with. I think we should be grateful that, okay, now at least it seems to me that I understand or know how this person might be feeling and uh, have some kind of understanding about, you know, the basic features of the situation that, that that is in front of us. And to the person as well, that that emotion signifies something. It tells It tells the person and the people around them that something important is happening, something that impinges on their well-being or you know, that's relevant to some of their major concerns and goals. It's just happened or is, is in the process of unfolding. And that, you know, those moments are important to, to kind of understand, I think. Peter, I saw someone wearing a badge the other day that said cheerful despair. And I thought that summed up emotional flexibility. I haven't seen that one. Cheerful despair. I'm not, I'm not quite sure I know what, what the connotations of that are. <laughs> but um, I think the ability to experience both despair and joy at the appropriate times and and for the appropriate durations, and with you know with appropriate intensity, and that, that there are many question marks that come along with with intensity with with yeah. all those kind of caveats. Um, and I think this is something that that Aristotle also observed many 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 years ago that you know emotions are not necessarily good or bad. That it very much depends on the appropriateness of the emotion to the context, and its you know intensity and duration being the, the right type and kind for. For the situation. One last question. Culturally, some emotions are seen as no no in public, whereas in other contexts, those emotions are simply fine. That's where they belong. Does that make things more complicated? It definitely does. I think um, we we have evidence that in Australia and in, in, in the US, for example, we live in cultures where many people believe that it's less acceptable to experience and express unpleasant emotions like sadness or anxiety. Um, I'm referring to work done actually by a colleague here in the School of Psychological Sciences, Brock Bastian, who's studied people's social expectancies, as he terms it, about what, what appropriate or what emotions are appropriate to experience and express in our culture. So in Australia, we, we tend, people tend to report that they think other people expect them not to experience these unpleasant negative emotions, whereas this is less the case in, in cultures uh, in some cultures in East Asia, for example, such as Japan. And we, we know that this actually impacts people's well-being as well. So it, it's inevitable that at some point we are going to experience sadness and anxiety and frustration and stress. And so if we, to the extent that we believe that's not acceptable in our culture, um, it just makes for a, a more difficult experience. Uh, because in addition to feeling stressed or sad or anxious, we also may feel you know ashamed or alone if we think that others around us sort of reject our experiences as inauthentic or inappropriate. So I think we do need to work on changing our culture to be a little bit more accepting, you know, sort of warts and all. And and I have I've myself have been in other cultures that 
I feel are more open to the negative sides of emotional experience. Um, so I th I'm thinking of time I've spent in the Czech Republic where, you know, it's quite acceptable for people in business dealings, for instance, to answer the question, how are you in the negative, which would be almost unheard of in Australia. So if somebody asks you, how are you going, saying anything other than fine or not too bad uh, is, is very kind of uh, jarring in, in an Australian context and, you know, would be rather unexpected. In Czech Republic, it's less so in my experience. I mean, I don't know of any research comparing these two particular nations, but I've, I've witnessed people talking to others who they don't, who they're not very familiar with and saying, look, I'm, I'm actually not very well right now. You know, here are a few things that are, that are bothering me at the moment. And I think that openness to acknowledging that, you know, sometimes things don't go well for us and it's okay to have accompanying unpleasant, uh, stressful emotions that go along with those experiences is, is okay. May we all go forth in our little balls of emotions and adapt to the environment <laughs> in the best possible way. It's a wonder we can get anything done, but I suppose emotions also drive us to do things. Yes, they definitely do, yeah. Professor Peter Caval, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks to Dr Peter Caval, lecturer at the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights, was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on May 29, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production by Dr Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes or Wooshka and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.